0: Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Good morning. I'm Julia Hobsbawm from Editorial Intelligence. I love welcoming people to Editorial Intelligence events, in other people's gorgeous offices, and Edelman always scores very highly in that regard. Edelman are, of course, one of our partners for the Mobile World Conference, which I think even we are um, forced into a bit of smugness, is reasonably topical at this moment in time. Uh, the hashtag throughout the day here and at Channel 4, our other host partner is EI Mobile, and in fact not uncoincidentally, we launch our own app called the EI Mobile today. I'm just about to hand you over to Marshall Manson, the Director of Digital Strategy at Edelman, to introduce the first session. Uh, And it goes without saying that you can see in his biography that he is without doubt the most clued up digital communicator in the agency world, bar none really. Without further ado, and with the uh, reminder that everything here is on the record. Podcast for posterity. I'm going to hand you over to uh, the legend, Marshall Manson.
1: Well, thank you. Uh, that's entirely too kind. Um, it's really lovely to, to be with you, and it's uh, my pleasure and privilege to welcome you uh, here to Edelman. Uh, I get to come into this place to work every day, which is uh, which is pretty exciting. Um, anyway, we're really glad to have you with us. Um, Equally, uh, I'm glad to welcome our first panel of the morning uh, David Rowan from Wired, Mark Rogers from Market Sentinel, and uh, Teresa Wise from, uh, from Wise Consulting. Uh, I will introduce, I will sort of provide a bit more formal introduction for each of them in a, in a few minutes, but uh, the idea this morning is to sort of begin with a big thought, I suppose, a thought for the day, if you like. Um, I won't presume to, uh, to get involved with offering a big thought, but I thought I might take just two minutes and, and do a bit of stage setting. Um, I suspect that we all appreciate the value of mobile phones um, and mobile devices as a whole and how they're changing the way that we communicate, um, I think if I were to ask for a show of hands, which I won't, I would discover that every single one of you is carrying at least one and probably more than one, in some cases, mobile devices on you even now. Um, I think if we were to even probe a bit further and ask how many of you are ca- carrying smartphones, uh, we would discover that nearly all of you are. And if we were to, discover, to ask how many of you have a tablet on, on hand at the moment, uh, I suspect there, again, we'd probably get a pretty good pretty good participation level. Obviously, we're perhaps not representative of the population, but at the same time, those trends, those figures in the UK and across Europe uh, have changed the way that we communicate. Um, the, for the implications of this, you need only look to the story of the day, uh, the sort of hacking scandal that, that is the front page and lead of most of the, today's news coverage. But actually, perhaps even more interesting, and I'm sorry, I have to suggest probably more significantly, um, are the events of the last few months across North Africa and in the Middle East. Um, The way that mobile devices affected those communities of people and brought people together around uh, a a real political movement uh, was, I think, profound in its importance and lasting in its consequences. So what's changed? Why have we gotten where we are? Um, I think we need to credit two key moments. Uh, I think the first is, we need to credit the folks at Research and Motion for inventing the BlackBerry. Um, you know, Blackberry put mobile in our hand, sorry, put email in our mobiles. Uh, it then put the web in our mobiles, kind of before anybody else. But then I think we also have to hold our hand up and say that um, certainly Apple and the iPhone really changed everything because it put the whole web in our mobile device as well in a way that was generalized and consumerized and that everyone could embrace and accept. And that fundamentally changed what people expected from their mobile devices. It's interesting to me as well that when you get out of Western Europe and the US into places like Africa and the Middle East where there isn't a a robust uh, web infrastructure of wires and cables the changes that BlackBerry and iPhone and subsequent uh, builders of products have brought us really has changed societies there and the way that the web changed our society. In Africa in particular, I think, you know, it's, it, it's not too far-fetched to say that mobile is the web and that's the way people experience it. Um, and it is profoundly changing societies there. So what's next? Um, more power in our devices, absolutely. More speed, absolutely. Different form factors, you know, different shapes of tablets, different sizes, all those things, absolutely right. In some ways, though, that's less interesting than, than I think uh, two other developments that seem to be emerging. One is how mobile is going to begin to genuinely affect our lifestyle, how we live our lives day to day. I don't know how many of you have heard of something called NFC, Uh, near-field communications. Um, This is the idea that there's going to be a chip in your mobile device that will allow you to do certain things. And the one that everybody's talking about at the moment is allow you to pay uh, almost like a credit card or the swipe thing that some of us use at the petrol station. Um, I think actually the implications of NFC are much more interesting and applied in other ways. So, for example, we can put an NFC reader in a retail outlet and have that reader... uh, uh, essentially use the chip, the information in your chip, to make you a friend of the brand on Facebook, or to get you connected with the brand on Twitter, or LinkedIn, or some other social platform, we can begin to apply social actions in the real world between mobile devices, people, and and brands or companies. That's potentially really interesting. The other evolving or developing area that I just think is incredibly important, and and I hope some Ph.D. candidate will write a great dissertation on this, is how mobile's affecting us as a society from, purely from a sociological standpoint. How is it changing the way that we as people interact with one another? How is it changing the way that we form relationships? You know, I, my favorite little example of this is the death of grammar um, You know, people who are used to using mobiles a lot are used to communicating in short bursts with very little punctuation. How much space is there for misunderstanding in a world without grammar? And the answer is, an awful lot. How much does that affect us over the long term? And that's just a small example. You know, there are other big sort of, I think, important changes in the way that we all sort of interact with one another that mobile is going to deliver to us. So, it's a big topic. It's an exciting time. I'm going to stop talking um, and get on to our panel of experts and our day of experts. I think looking at the program, uh, we've got a great day ahead of us. Now, I'm supposed to do a couple of housekeeping things. Julie has mentioned both of these. Um, but just a reminder, our discussion today is on the record. It's being recorded for podcasting later. I suspect some of us will be tweeting about some of the discussions, so just keep that in mind. The hashtag is EIMobile uh, if you want to join the discussion um now pure housekeeping we don't have any fire alarms scheduled for today so if there is a fire alarm uh, please do take notice of it uh someone in a yellow jacket will come in and guide you out uh through the back uh the toilets are back down in reception if you need to make use of those um and finally it's only left for me to say once again welcome to edelman we're very glad to have all of you today and i'm certainly looking forward to the discussion now uh I want to turn things over to our panel. Um, I think what I might do is just introduce each of you in turn, if that's okay. And I think our plan is each person is just going to take sort of five or six minutes, between five and ten minutes, whatever, to give you their big thought for the day. And then we'll save some time at the end. I've got a couple of questions for them, and I'm sure you will as well. So I think we'll start on my left with Mark Rogers. Uh, Mark is the founder and CEO of Market Sentinel. Um, Market Sentinel uses complex maths to allow marketers and communicators to understand their marketplace, uh, position their brand, and maximize their marketing spend. Since its foundation in 2004, Market Sentinel has acquired a number of UK and international blue chip customers, including Hyundai, Cadbury, Rio Tinto, and ITV, employing Market Sentinel's proprietary social media monitoring analytics to measure the relevance of online conversations and respond to them. The company has recently launched beta, sorry, has recently beta launched the Skittle Friends Facebook fan page analytics tool, which is both a mouthful and incredibly useful. Um, previously, Mark was a TV producer with Credits as Diverse as the Money Program and Crime Watch uh, before, beca- before he became a co founding commissioning editor of BBC Online and co founder of Amazon's multi platform initiative, Amazon.com Anywhere. So, welcome to Mark. Uh, over to you, sir. Thank you very much, Marshall. Um, so um, I'm
2: going to stand up um, and uh, I'll, I'm going to talk about one specific aspect of mobile. Um, and um, I think Marshall's made some really interesting points about the broad impact of mobile and the perhaps unexpected ways in which it's going to change our world. Um, and I'm going to look a little bit about what we can observe because our business is data and metrics. Um, and I'm going to look about the spread of ideas... And that's particularly relevant to anyone in the communications function. Obviously, um, that's where we are today in, in, in Edelman, um, whether they're a marketeer or somebody with a political um, agenda or a philosophical agenda. Um, so the point about um, the applications you can run on mobile devices is they make all these things measurable up till um, the existence of Twitter and Facebook from and, and other apps um, which publish Uh, from mobile devices, all of these conversations, mobile phone conversations, were hidden. Um, And um, that meant that you had to intuit what was being said Um, from the existence of the fact of the conversation, something that was done around the time of 9-11, for example, and then in the assassination of um, Hariri. There's a fantastic piece about that, which um, if if you're uh, interested in in networks, is a really interesting read. Um, But essentially now, that's just the existence of mobile phone conversations. If if people are actually publishing, you can can spot other things and you can measure it, and that's fantastically powerful. Um, So I'm going to talk about how ideas spread, and I'm going to talk specifically about a couple of things that have been happening recently that Marshall also mentioned. Last year, I think it was October or November, Malcolm Gladwell, whose ideas I think are behind a lot of the rhetoric that you hear about the spread of ideas, you know, the idea of influencers and connectors and so on, which he gave... currency to in, uh, in his book The Tipping Point which was what more than 10 years ago now 15 probably um, he suggested rather sniffily that the revolution would not be tweeted um, in this famous piece which wasn't much responded to at the time um, and he was saying that essentially it was too small a, twit, a tweet or a Facebook like was too small in interaction to have any impact and that there was nobody on the barricades as a result of tweeting these were people sitting in their armchairs sounding off but he was wrong, because there were a couple of things that happened, and I think not entirely, li- not entirely unlinked. Um, first of all, there was a WikiLeaks cable. Um, which famously described the son of the president of Tunisia tossing stakes to his pet tiger um, in this afternoon. Very, very beautifully written dispatch from somebody in the State Department. Um, very critical uh, of, of, of the regime in Tunisia. And this was given, obviously, leaked because of the Bradley Manning uh, documents um, via WikiLeaks, and then given huge currency thanks to the internet. Um, and what happened after that? or around the same time was um, a, a man, a fruit seller, immolated himself um, in a protest against having his, his, his fruit, fruit and vegetable stall taken away from him. Um, and these events sparked off the, the, the African revolutions the North African revolutions and Middle Eastern revolutions. Um, and you can see that that was driven by in large measure the internet. The spread of ideas to the extent that Mubarak at one point famously or infamously with the perhaps forced cooperation of, of, of Vodafone, shut down the entire mobile phone network in the country. Um, so um, how do ideas spread? How do these kinds of things happen? Um, we've done an awful lot of detailed work looking at how ideas spread in Twitter and Facebook, and they're very different ecologies, and they're, very, they're strong in different ways. Um, ideas generally spread not because there is a, um, a strong... Uh, Paid agenda behind them they spread because people are interested in them all of this stuff of course is totally intuitive but you can prove it mathematically in other words you you get uh, revolutions or ideas that spread in a viral way because they have a, they appeal to universal values above all so if something is relevant to everybody it will spread on particularly on Facebook Facebook there is a higher barrier to spreading which I'll I'll, I'll, I'll talk about it's mainly to do with the fact that within Facebook, ideas can only spread as a result of, your, of, of you sharing them with your social graph in the, in the jargon. That means the 130 on average people with whom you have a friend connection. Now, obviously, if you're updating something and saying, hey, I think this is cool or this is good or this is outrageous, um, within, your face, within your friend group of 130 people, only a limited number of people will, will share the same interests as you. So I have a friend on Facebook. Dead keen on professional cycling. So my news feed from him is just full of mobile cycling news, which I just have no interest in at all. Um, but if he were to say, I've discovered this, this fantastic injustice, I've discovered that you know, um, Millie Val- Milli, um, Milli Dowler's mobile phone was hacked, or some major piece of news, of course I'll pass that on. Um, with Twitter, the barrier is rather lower. With Twitter, you can choose to follow hashtags, as we're all going to follow today with Ei Mobile. So everybody who's interested can figure out what's happening. That mechanism doesn't exist within within Facebook, and I think it's important when you're planning how you use these platforms to bear that sort of thing in mind. Um, Facebook has a higher graph, um, uh, or or I should say, a a, a higher threshold. So um, this is, I'm afraid, a little bit full of jargon, but um, what makes things viral? And and the jargon actually is quite simple to understand. Um, Something has to be new. It's got to be recent. It can't be republished. That's going to be a big barrier to it being spread. Um, So topicality is extremely important. Relevancy. Now, relevancy can be measured in in one of two ways. If I'm interested in EI Mobile and I'm already following that hashtag, anything that is tagged EI Mobile will be relevant to me. That creates, though, a problem if you're publishing, because you don't know necessarily the hashtags, if you're within Twitter, you need to use to be topical to the maximum number of people. You're going to have to second-guess those hashtags. You're going to have to do some research with sophisticated sophisticated tools and go and find those hashtags what you have to say may be topical but it may just not be discovered because searching on twitter is a real nightmare you know it brings up tens of thousands of results on any particular keyword so hashtags are important tone is extremely important and there is is just beginning to be published some mathematical studies looking at this Um, But, of course, when I describe how it works to you, it's very intuitive. Positivity is really important. Ideas spread from positive or neutral people. And if you look at the way influencer marketing has set out to work... There are some fundamental misunderstandings, I think, around how people approach the idea of influencers. Actually, there are two kinds of nodes in a network that are really important. One is genuine authorities, and by that I mean the department of something, the the regulator. That is an authority. The professor of something at the university of somewhere, that's an authority. That person, by definition, is a refuser. There's someone who often says no to things. There's somebody who says not this, but this. That, in a network, actually means they don't pass ideas on. So what I'm getting at here is when people talk about influencers, what they often mean is not influencers, but connectors. People who are positive, people who are always talking, they're always passing on news. And those functions are actually extremely different. So, tone is really important. And when you, when you look at people, for example, if any of you are in a, a communications function, if you look at a list of people that you think you should be targeting, it's really important to work out which ones of them fall into those two categories. If you can to find out mathematically, but if you can't just to ask yourself the question, is this a passer-on of news, a passer-on of information, or is this someone to whom I should humbly submit my thought, perhaps even via an intermediary? So... Um, That boils down into the characteristics of these nodes of the network. And essentially what that means is you can categorize them in a couple of different ways. Nodes have affinity. In other words, what's one kind of person who's interested in mobile phones will be relevant to another kind of person who's interested in mobile phones or racing, biking, or whatever. Um, You can short circuit that by... Couching your message in universal human terms, because the more universal something is, the more likely you are to be able to address the network as a whole. And what I mean by that, when I started in journalism, I worked for a a Glaswegian former newspaper guy called Ron Neal. And Ron Neal, who was at the time editor of Breakfast Time years ago, um, used to say, he used to look at the, the stories that were being pitched and used to go, that's all good, that's all good. And I can't do a very good Glaswegian accent. Um, but he'd say, gardens, that's great, everyone's got a garden. Uh, or mothers, everyone's got a mother. Uh, because the point being, if, you're, if you can be universal or if you can couch, couch your message in universal terms, that's better. So the two options here you have are to be specific or to be universal. Uh, but if you're going to be specific, you have to find the people who are going to be interested in what you are interested in. Um, affect, I've talked about a little bit, positivity. And then the other one, which is a really interesting example, is presence. So I'll just talk a little bit how presence works. So here's some, ex- here's, here's some of our work. So we looked a couple of times at the UK Uncut Um, Twitter protests. Now, the UK uncut Twitter protests are a classic example of the topical vertical uh, community, people who are spreading ideas because they're enraged about something in particular, in this case, perceived tax avoidance by large companies. Um, what was interesting about this was that there were two big events. One, I think, was last autumn and then another one in the spring of this year, April. We ran this analysis twice, and what we noticed was that the nodes, the big nodes, and, and by the way, this is a retweet network where the large um, the large node represents um, a tweet that is much retweeted. Um, and you can see, or a tweeter that's much retweeted, um, and you can see that... Um, you know, you can, you can measure the relative impact of people. What was interesting about UK Uncut was it was totally different people. Each time it was totally different people. And we originally were sparked into doing this by a, a, a client who came to us and said, could you discover this? And I think the client thought, there is a group of fifth columnists. If only we could understand who they were, we could then target them and figure out what they want, what their agenda is, and we could address that. What we discovered instead was this was a very fluid conversation. And two particularly important nodes you're going to Channel 4 this afternoon. Interesting. One of them was Jon Snow. Jon Snow was very important last autumn and he was absent this spring. Why was he absent? He was on location. He was in the Middle East. And there's a really interesting effect, particularly with Twitter, which is if you're not there, you are not a node in the network. So in other words, it's very important, and again, this seems obvious when, when you think about it, that someone, ha- someone has to be there to be part of the network, particularly on Twitter and, and also on Facebook. If you're not actually available, then the network falls apart because you're not, you're not going to create your, uh, your, your link between all the people you know and all the people that you can pass on your message to. So um, briefly, in summary... What does, the, what, what does the kind of metrics we look at, what are the metrics we look at, tell you about how ideas spread online? Universal ideas spread more, so if you, need, if you need to be spreading an idea, be universal. Be targeted if you can't be universal, so discover the people who are relevant to your agenda. Spend a lot of time and, and money working out who those are, because if you can discover even 10 people who are really relevant to you, you'll save a lot of time and effort. And you're looking really for people who are positive and who are there. So that's the summary of my two, two cents on, uh, on, on this spread of mobile ideas. Thank you.
1: Thanks very much, Mark. Um, we'll move on next to Teresa Wise. Um, Teresa is the founder of Teresa Wise Consulting. Uh, and previously, Teresa was a senior vice president Corporate Strategy for Europe, the Middle East, and Africa at the Walt Disney Company. Uh, in that role, she was seconded to Corporate HQ in Los Angeles to work on the company's annual five-year plan process and present to the main board at Bob Iger's annual board retreat. Uh, prior to this, uh, she was a partner in the media and entertainment practice at Accenture. Uh, Teresa recently implemented plans for online broadband games to d- uh, delivered to consoles, Interactive television advertising and video on demand services for a European cable operator. She also advised media corporations on their transition to a digital environment. From 1993 to 1996, Teresa worked for Deloitte and uh, Tush, sorry for Deloitte and Touche Braxton, uh, developing market entry strategies and identifying new technologies. She's also worked for BT, British Aerospace Communications, British Satellite Broadcasting. Um, welcome, Teresa. We look forward to your Thank thoughts. Thank
3: you very much. I am going to use the podium, but um, I won't have slides. Um, thanks very much for the intro. Um, I'm going to take a view which is sort of adjacent to, to the one we've just had but really takes a look from, from perhaps the traditional brand point of view of what you do around some of these communications. The reason partly is inspired by the wonderful Seth Godin who spoke at um, J- uh, Julia's Names Not Numbers conference who basically implied that nearly all traditional brands given this digital environment were kind of on the verge of death. Uh, so I, I would sort of want, want to sort of play a bit with that. I think the key trends, and mobile is a key piece of this, but by no means all of it, Uh, the key trends I'm going to talk about very briefly are um, the combustion of digital word of mouth, which we've also been been speaking about, the rise of recommendation engines, which have a very related um, effect with that, Um, the rapid shift from traditional to uh, digital distribution models, and then the um, related proliferation of branded competition. So I think the first and perhaps the most important trend is the combustion um, of digital word of mouth. And this has arisen because, uh, as we know, the combination of um, Facebook, um, Twitter, YouTube, has meant that um, actually things can go viral uh, a lot more quickly. And there's some, it, you, one can use this for good or for ill, as we know. So there's some interesting political examples. The Obama campaign, where he uh, won, was abs- uh, you know, attributed as, as one of the most successful political use of social media and um, there are quite a lot of statistics behind that. A political example used recently, which um, I'm actually uh, very sceptical of, is the Arab Spring. Um, and the reason I'm sceptical is not whether the Spring happened or not, but actually that people are looking at the Arab Spring through the lens of UK and the US in particular. And actually, perhaps apart from Egypt, there are very few people online in most of the Middle East countries. The reason, it's certainly been around spread of word of mouth, but actually the, the key driver in that has been Al Jazeera, the t- traditional television, um, rather than online, mobile, and so forth. Um, Going back to some brand examples, the key sort of use for good, if you like, of where Twitter and YouTube has has gone completely crazy is is Susan Boyle. Um, She went from a national phenomenon here um, to uh, Britain's Got Talent to um, extraordinary global phenomenon, really because because of that. And sadly for ITV, they didn't benefit commercially from, from the whole thing going global, um, so that's a use for good, but a use for ill, as we as we know to our cost in in brands, is is corporate reputation. And there's some great examples of that. Um, one is um, obviously I don't know if you guys looked at Domino's Pizza a while back, but it, basically an employee filmed himself, kind of you know um, dicking around with a with a cheese and sticking it up his nose, and then it got posted on on. Uh, on, on YouTube and then went crazy through Twitter, and, then, and the chief exec had to end up. Um, he probably never used Twitter before, and he had to end up doing an apology via Twitter and, and Facebook. So, and that is, actually doesn't just apply to brands; it applies um, uh, to to individuals. And there's nothing worse than a senior executive filmed, um, perhaps you know, high on something or in some compromising situation. And you know, the, the nightmare. And the reason this is all much more of a worry now than it ever. Used used to be is actually the mobile phone because you can take videos wherever you are and then post it right up and you know the difference between seeing something in print and then seeing an actual video of it is phenomenal talking from the disney perspective the nightmare scenario for a disney is somebody's filming an accident in a theme park you know if you if you talk about that in the press and text it's one thing actually seeing it in video is quite another so what are, the, what are the implications? I think um, the interesting thing is what do you do if you're a brand and you have all these um, I- uh, issues uh, going, on, going on around you? Um, the key thing, actually, and it's, it's kind of boring but, but deeply true, is that you have to... Um, certainly you need to manage the communications but the primary thing you need to focus on is the quality of the products so it's it's almost like it gives you more reason to have to get the product right first time and to really focus on the customer experience because the better your quality the more consistent your quality the less vulnerable you are Um, The second thing is that, obviously, brands can harness some of those viral means of communication. We heard that very well sort of articulated uh, by the last speaker. Um, And the third effect is that traditional marketing um, uh, becomes much less impactful. So it means that actually people are really reassessing how much weight they put on traditional marketing. So that's the first trend. The second, the rise of recommendation engines, which is a really related area. So the key examples of that, perhaps in the media world, which is the one I, I know well, um, you know, Amazon for books, Rotten Tomatoes for films, TripAdvisor for travel, Pandora for music. And the issue there is, again, is that people really are taking much less notice of what the traditional marketing is telling them. And this is such a worry. I mean, actually, the, um, Disney did some research on it, and they found that people were, um, there's some enormous amount of people Spending time and taking taking buying decisions based on recommendation engines, and it's true now in cars, in many in many key categories, um, uh, and uh, you know it's, it's, it, that, this is a really significant issue. So, what do, what do brands actually do about it? Um, I think the key thing here, um, um, perhaps the uh, one, one of the issues, which is also perhaps related to the previous digital, well, the combustion of word of mouth, is that things die overnight. So all the traditional marketing behind a great movie won't actually even let it last through its opening weekend. It'll die between Friday and Saturday. Um, so what can they do? Well, uh, the, the key thing, perhaps, is um, brands that haven't previously had to do CRM. Um, are actually having to get direct relationships with their customers because they're still a brand, they still aren't maybe as trusted as their peer group, but they can't rely on um, the sort of traditional marketing media to form that relationship with their customers. So actually, uh, in, to slightly counterbalance what um, some of the peer group is, are doing, they need to actually communicate directly with their customers. Um, so I'm going to look at... Um, the shift to digital models—I'll be very brief on this because we know we know this topic very well. But the issue here is, if you've got a traditional business, particularly in the TV um, scape, which is doing very—you know—has done traditionally very well. ITV is a good example. Um, actually, the fact that you've done well on TV and, and people are shifting some of their long-form video view online, unfortunately, doesn't mean that you have any capability in the online um, world. And a lot of the uh, key media brands, certainly, but many others are discovering this to their cost, that it's a totally different capability set. Um, what do they do about this? Well, I mean, ITV has, has struggled. They've sort of started with Seesaw. They had Kangaroo. They're now going to, to UView. Um, I think the answer is um, it's re- a bit related to the recommendation, um, the brands that get their um, strength through recommendation. The issue is actually tends to be partnership. So U, U if you like, people, people aren't just going won't go to U, U in the future just to see ITV. They'll go to see all the panoply of free to air TV programmes, um, and that's where that'll be the destination. Just as you go to a supermarket to see a load of, of brands that you want to buy, uh, and probably the answer is try not. You, know, you might not be able to own that space, so try and partner sensibly. Um, and the final issue is the basically that uh, another thing that uh, you know, Seth Groden mentioned that. The shelf space isn't the scarce thing anymore. The uh, attention is. And so there are a tonne of, um, of new products everywhere. And the mobile space, it's obviously apps. Um, uh, and there's, there's very low barriers to entry. A tonne of them are launching every day. Some of them don't last very long. So the sustainability is much less, as we know. Um, and what do you do to stand out um, uh, if you're a traditional brand in, in, that, in, the, in that noise? And perhaps the key thing that, that uh, is worth sort of thinking about is... If you have a brand space that people trust and you actually own that quite well, and, and Disney, is, Disney is a wonderful example of this, um, what Disney would do or suggest is to stand very firm on the attributes that you're known for, but you also need to innovate because as the territory moves, the need to innovate becomes much, much more important. But to innovate in intangible ways and to innovate um, in ways that people clearly want. Um, and uh, really to spread that innovation and the brand building right throughout the organization. Um, so um, that's, some, that's some thoughts for my piece. Thank you.
1: Thanks very much, Teresa. Great stuff. Um, we're going to finish with uh, David Rowan. Um, David is the editor of Wired Magazine. Um, uh, which won the 2009 launch of the year at the British Society of Magazine Editors Awards. Um, he also writes a monthly column in GQ and an excellent monthly column that I make a habit of reading in Connie Nast, Traveler. He um, speaks all over the world and, and appear, has recently appeared on such top-end media outlets as BBC Newsnight, Breakfast, Radio 4, and all the rest of it. Dave, we're very glad to have you with us and look forward to, to your thoughts. Thank you. I'm going to keep it informal.
4: Um, I have a simple mission today. I want to help you all become billionaires because there is a phenomenal opportunity that's kind of just beginning and it comes down to a word that we should all understand coined by a man called John Durr who's a partner at a Silicon Valley venture capital firm called Kleiner Perkins and John Durr who got in early on nice little startups like Google, um, says he's only now investing in companies that are doing solo-mo. Solo-mo is social plus local plus mobile. And if you manage to tick all three boxes, then you have the potential to create something huge, global, and very fast-scaling in a market that is only just beginning to take off. So if you think about the number of cell phones out there, kind of five and a half billion, the last figure I saw, most of them not smartphones. Um, The number of desktop computers, 1.6, 1.7 billion. So there's kind of three times as many cell phones already. Um, So the Internet as we know it, that computer in the corner of the study, or on your desk at work um, that's no longer the story in fact the first three months of the year for the first time the number of mobile internet devices smartphones and tablets overtook desktop internet devices Um, and that's hugely significant because your behaviour changes on the mobile internet you're much more likely to spend money you're much more likely to share and taking those three strands one by one um, to try and explain where the opportunities are. Social is everything from using your social graph to decide what to buy to TV companies having to scramble to find ways to tap into that back channel of what people are saying about broadcast because that's the way We're going to be recommending to each other what to watch, not through the schedulers. Um, Social commerce is a phrase that people at Facebook are using an awful lot now. They talk about business having to redesign itself socially, social design, every type of business, whether you're a car company, whether you're a manufacturer or a retailer. And, And what they mean is we will respond... To the tastes and to the recommendations and to the experiences of people we trust because there's a connection in real life that's translated into an online connection and some brands are starting to experiment with massive success on this if you have the like button from Facebook embedded on your website you can see when you log in what other people in your network are sampling are buying Amazon in the US for instance will tell you which books, which movies, which other products your friends are interested in and when their birthday is. And they're seeing this lead to a massive rise in transactions. Um, Volkswagen launched its Golf GTI last summer only on Facebook. They didn't do a conventional advertising campaign because they they realized that one of the big drivers to buying a car isn't The stats, how big the engine is. It's whether your family and whether your friends think it's cool. So they allowed you to customize on the website your particular car. Should it have wheel trims? What color should it be? Should it have a roof rack? And then they created a very simple mechanism for you to share this and get feedback from your peer group. And they said about 450,000 people started this process. And it led to a huge rise in test drives. Levi's created the personalized Levi's store for you based on the pairs of jeans that your social networks had liked. And again, they say this creates much more engagement and much more likelihood for you to spend money. So this is going not just in transactions, it's going into media consumption. The outgoing head of Endemol, Inon Crease, said um, a couple of months ago that whoever cracks... The social aspect of TV will become the richest person in the world because it's no longer about the advertiser giving you that message. It's about you encouraging people you know and creating that cascade to tell them this is the program you need to watch. There's something emotional about the mobile device. Um, I'm going to do a little cruel experiment now. Anybody here have a smartphone? Just hold it in your hand. Okay, now swap it with the person next to you. So it's quite it's quite painful, isn't it? You can you can swap it back. <laughs> Give it back. It's all right. It's all right. I, 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 I just I, I do this only not to torture you, but. To remind you, this is part of our identity. There's a very strong emotional connection you have with your mobile device. It's an expression of you, which your desktop computer and your laptop isn't. And that's because we curate our public identity through this and also our personal identity. So there's pictures of the children, but there's also your status updates, your check-ins, your Facebook friends. And because... It's an expression of us. We'll invest not just time but money in it. So companies like Spotify, who offer a free service on the desktop internet, find on the mobile internet, we're willing to pay £10 or €10 or soon, I think, $10 a month to get that convenience wherever we are. It's a part of our identity. And in the mobile world, identity and your public reputation... Is actually measurable. There's a growing number of websites and services that will quantify how influential you are in this world. There's one called clout.com. There's another called peerindex. And they'll give you a score out of 100 based on how many people are responding to your messages, how influential they are, how often they're retweeting. Um, So if you're on Twitter, just see how influential you are. It becomes quite addictive. I've started hearing about people who will not see people for interviews if they're recruiting, if they have a clout score of less than 50, because it suggests you know they're not going to be as clued in. Um, so social is everything from sharing taste to sharing transaction. There are websites like Blippi.com and Swipely.com, which encourage you... Which encourage you to publish all your purchases. You give them the details of your PayPal account, your credit card, your eBay account, and they will publish everything you buy. Now, I don't want to do this, but my friend Ryan, who's been publishing everything from his dental floss to the gun he bought, he's in California, um, was explaining to me why he does this. He says it gives him a kick. He has an influence among cool people, some of whom he knows, some of whom he doesn't know, but he loves the idea of shaping their tastes, and also if he follows people on these networks, he actually learns about cool products to buy himself. So as well as social, the low bit of this is local. Um, Now we know about check-ins. We know Dennis Crowley of Foursquare hit on by accident a nice little business model. Coffee shops coming to him saying, could we advertise Foursquare on our door and say if you check in to our location you'll get a discount. And now Facebook is doing it with... Facebook places and so on. Um, The mobile device telling the world where you are, giving out tons of data about you and your consumption habits, um, but all sorts of other data, is leading to opportunities limited only by the imagination of the entrepreneurs behind them. So just a couple of examples. Um, There's an Israeli company called Waze, W-A-Z-E, that is a network of people who share through their mobile phones movements, where they are in traffic. And if you're logged in, you know where the traffic jams are. You know where the police radar traps are. You get a real-time map. Um, there's some doctors in the States concerned that in cities, you never quite know where people with asthma are going to get affected by it. So they've created a real-time map based on putting sensors in people's asthma inhalers. They call the project Asthmapolis. Asthmapolis. And they can build real-time Google Maps showing where people are using their asthma inhalers. So this is data locally that empowers you and changes behaviour. Um, but my favourite example of the local check-in leading to interesting things is a London-based company that I wrote about a couple of months ago called Badu, where you download an app. It's mobile and it's on desktop. You give it a photo of yourself, a little profile, and you can set how near you want to meet people do you want to meet people within 50 metres or 500 metres and then you get a little menu of people who are in your vicinity who you can start flirting with it's a hookup app and what's interesting is it's got 120 million members run by a Russian who lives in London and it's making hundreds of millions of dollars a year because people are paying to get to the top of the search results it's being valued at 2 to 5 billion dollars so, this is the social and the local. There's also the mobile, the Mo. And again, there isn't a sector that's not going to be affected. If you look at money, there's a whole bunch of startups now that are trying to take on the banks or even bypass the banks. Jack Dorsey set up something called Square, which turns your smartphone into a credit little debit card transaction machine. So, it means you just give him 2.75% of the transaction. You don't need to sign up if you're a merchant or if you're running a car boot sale. There's a whole bunch of other sites doing this, there's iZettle, there's Monetize. Um, what's really interesting is what's happening, happening in Africa at the moment. And if you want to be a billionaire, but you want to be a billionaire really quickly, move to Africa now. Um, we've got a big piece in our new edition of Wired, which is um, on sale tomorrow, about this huge opportunity. Because Africa bypassed Web 1.0. The desktop internet never really happened. But it's now hitting mobile internet in a big way. Um, So there's ships cabling the east and west coasts of Africa in real time. By about 2013, there will be vast amounts of bandwidth connected to the west coast. It's already plugged into the east coast. And that's creating a huge number of new startups using the Internet to put local businesses online to enable transactions. And they're often reaching the end consumer via the mobile, but it's transforming behavior. And just, you know, Monetize, a British company, is now running a mobile finance service in Nigeria. People are now starting to save for their pensions using their mobile device. In Kenya... A service called M Pesa, set up by um, Vodafone, Sargentia, working with DFID here. Not many people in rural Kenya have bank accounts, but everybody has a low end cell phone. So you set up an account where you can save up to about three or four hundred pounds. You can transfer it to people using a PIN code and their mobile number. About 25% of the GDP of Kenya is now passing through M Pesa. So It's transformative. Um, The other thing that the mobile device allows you to do is bypass the big institution. Um, Peer-to-peer is incredibly powerful. And we are all a hub on the internet with our mobile device. And just as an example, um, there's a boom in peer-to-peer travel websites at the moment. Airbnb, One Fine Stay, you can list your details if you want to stay somewhere in another city Um, you can find somebody there who has a spare sofa or a spare room or a spare whole apartment Um, and you agree a price there are now peer to peer car rental services one in the UK called Whipcar there's one just launching in Paris where our second biggest asset usually is our car that's sitting idle for most of the day we can list it on these sites agree a rate So that scary little emotional connection, your mobile device, I would say if you can think of a way to tap into our human desires to connect to each other, to have people help filter all the information for us, to help lead us to products that we'd actually value um, in a way that's both social and local and mobile, um, then let me invest in you. Thank you.
1: Well, thanks very much. Um, I, I want to just—we've got a few minutes left. I just want to hand it right over to all of you, actually, uh, and and ask if you guys have any questions for uh, for the panel. And I, let me also say, I am sitting here with my smartphone, and I've been reading the um, uh, the conversation on twitter uh it's nice to see that we've coined and are rapidly spreading a new buzzword because i think the one thing that we really needed here was a new buzzword actually i'm i'm kidding obviously uh, but the, there's been a huge amount of discussion around uh solomo and it's it's uh, an interesting study in what mark was talking about about idea spreading right enough of me over to you guys uh questions please
2: yeah, my name is Andy Matheson. I uh, run a consultancy company called DTC. Uh, and we spend a lot of time with um, top teams on strategy development. Um, and uh, I was just intrigued listening to you that quite a lot of the managers we work with, are, this is a present company accepted, uh, middle-aged white guys who, who, who ridicule Twitter and say, oh, yeah, I wouldn't want to mess with that. You know, I don't, I don't, And they, with pride, say, I don't have a Facebook account. And yet these guys are running... Seriously, corporate industries. I just wondered what your view. If did you have a message for them, anybody? Because are they doomed until one of the upstarts comes and wipes out their business? Is there any any hope for them?
1: Anybody want to uh, want to want to take the first crack at that one?
2: I had a very good. Uh, uh, I had a
1: very good response to that from
2: um, one of our partners the other day, who's just hired a seventy-year-old salesman. Um, who goes golfing with CEOs, and his job, as far as I can understand it, is somewhere on the links to say, well, I was tricking this thing on Twitter the other day, and I just came across this. <laughs> and, to, and to spook the CEOs into thinking, well, hang on, if this 70-year-old guy is using Twitter, then, then you know, maybe you know, I, should, uh, I should be uh, responsive. Oh, and by the way, if I told you I'm a non-exec for this very interesting... Um, you know, it seems a shrewd move, but I think you've identified a key issue.
3: Uh, If I had a a penny for every time a CEO said to me, um, well, all this technology stuff's really important because my 12-year-old's on it all the time, Um, and I'm thinking you want to run your company's strategy because of what your 12-year-old says uh, is incredibly common. Um, And to your point, yes, probably they should be doing more stuff online, but actually the issue with um, the, you know, how far do you go? It needs to be in a controlled way, I suppose, if you're a public figure, and for all the obvious reasons that we've seen in the press recently.
1: I suppose I'll just add one thought, if I may, which is that I'm not an expert in CEOs or CEO behavior, but in my sort of slightly naive view of the world, I think CEOs are smart people who are good listeners. So I don't think a CEO has to necessarily personally love Twitter or Facebook to understand that it can be important for his business. And if if he or she is, is sort of willing to listen to those around him who are saying, actually, this can have an impact, actually, I think that's pretty good leadership. David, yeah. I don't think you have to be on Facebook or on Twitter
4: but the smartest thing I've heard recently um, so I met the head of Condé Nast Italy Gian Paolo Grandi who invented the small size format for Glamour he invented the weekly version of Vanity Fair so it's now the second most profitable international bit of Condé Nast um, and he's in his late 60s and he told me I spend 30% of my time for reading I get people to print out the internet for me but I make sure I know what's going on because he knows that the behavior of his consumers is changing the whole time. And my favorite Douglas Adams quote, any technology around by the time you're 18 has kind of been there forever. It's part of nature. It always will be there. Any technology that comes between the ages of about 18 and 35 is, you know, could be useful for your career. Anything that arrives after you're 35 is against the order of nature and should be banned. (laughs) Um, So I would advise um, get really good interns and listen to them.
1: Uh, We did have one question from Twitter, David, for you. Uh, Someone asking, they have a clout clout score of 61. Do do you have a job for them at Wired? (laughs) Hi, I'm, I'm Paul Clark. I work on government propositions where the citizen and the state bump into each other
4: digitally. Um, But my question isn't about that. It's about commerce. And I was struck by the comment about the greater propensity to buy things and spend money using mobile. Um, That just doesn't square, really, with the experience we've had for years of kind of poor relation mobile apps and experiences, broken script. Uh, menus that don't pull down, it's a real surprise if a, a, a site actually works and you're lucky to get a mobile one. When are we going to see this flip? When are we going to see leadership in good buying experiences using the mobile and maybe as an afterthought producing something that works on your PC as well? I think Brian, Brian from Amazon is here. I've spent an awful lot of money using his mobile app. If a well-designed user experience makes it simple to buy, look at the Apple store. Um, you will spend money. We've just got to get
1: better at design.
3: Um, I, I, I echo that. I think we're on the verge of some very good user experiences.
1: Yeah, I, I think also the the, the way that the changing ways that mobile browsers work make it easier to shape user experiences for the device that is landing on the page, which means we don't need dots anymore. We don't need mobies. What we need is uh, sites that are smart enough to know this is a BlackBerry hitting me and serving the right user experience for that, mm-hmm. for that user. We're getting there. Um, we, we need more clients who are ready to say, right, we're willing to invest in building and shaping and structuring UI for, for this sort of device, for these devices that matter to my customers. Thank you.
2: Nidish uh, Parikh, uh, Nokia. Um, the, paradoxically, um, uh, anonymity and the uh, lack of accountability. Uh, engages people more in these social networks and uh, it does lead to uh, positive but also very negative behaviours as well and uh, on the negative side do you feel that that at some point in the end game uh, could lead to the demise of uh, uh, this type of social interaction
4: the most useful thing Mark Zuckerberg's done is create a move towards honesty and a single public identity And approaching 700 million people on Facebook are now using their real names. And that creates a much more civilised discourse. It's like the broken windows theory of policing in New York um, a couple of decades ago. If there is an environment created, a platform created, where people are aware that they're being judged as themselves, then they'll have peer pressure to behave better. And Facebook is proof that it works.
2: I think it's a big, surprising trend over the last few years of the Internet. I mean, when the Internet started, it was all about um, pseudono- pseudonymous behaviour and and um, bad behaviour as a result of that. And the big trend has been towards um, identity and uh, there's a big business in identity management which I think will, will will exist in the next 10 years or so and linked with payment and linked with trust, you know, Clout and Peer Index being examples of that. Um, and... That has a corollary, which is privacy. Of course, you know, if everything you say is, is public and is, is, you know, is in your name, then all this data is incredibly valuable and incredibly sensitive. And the sensitivities might change if you go from twenty fifteen to twenty five. You might no longer wish to share the things you, you previously shared. Yeah. And um, you know exactly. There are, over. At the moment, over. Um, <coughs> at the moment, that um, that's not something you can easily do. But I think as people come to grips with that, um, there's going to be a big, you know, a big push to have more sophisticated controls that aren't hidden away.
1: All right. I, I really, really want to thank our panel. Uh, I think we're just about out of time for this session. Um, so thanks to the three of you for participating. And uh, enjoy the rest of the day.